Father in heaven, we are um, probably not aware enough of how bad our hearts really are. And it is easy to use any number of things like comparisons and history, um, our own activities, and worse, religious observance, to make our conscience feel better than what it should. And today I pray that you would give us insight from Matthew 15 so that we might be better aware of the problem of legalism. We might see it for what it is and then see the seeds and the remnant of it in our hearts. Lord, I pray for people in this room and who will hear this message on the internet and worship too as well, who have come today, who are here because it's Sunday, it's what they do, they go to church, but if they were honest, their heart is a million miles away. They're lonely, they're hurting, they feel convicted, and yet, Lord, they are not really righteous. And I pray that today you might awaken their hearts and empower um, a renewed desire to follow after you, or maybe a first desire to follow after you. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher. I ask you to fill my mind and my mouth with the very things that you want College Park Church to hear today. Not one word less, not one word more. For the glory of Christ, I pray this in his name. Amen. On June 4, CNN.com ran a very interesting article under this title, Are There Dangers in Being Spiritual But Not Religious? The picture for the article was a man in a bathing suit sitting cross-legged on a beach in a prayer position. And the caption under the picture said this, Being spiritual, not religious, means you don't need a church or a community, some say. A beach will do. And the article went on to feature various viewpoints as to this unique spiritual but not religious trend. Some view it as an egotistical expression. Others view it as just the natural response to the abuses of organized religion. In 2009, Lifeway Christian Resources polled a number of millennials. Those are people from ages 18 to 29. And of those that they polled, those 18 to 29-year-olds... 72% of them embrace this category of I'm spiritual but not religious. In fact, it's so common that it has its own acronym. It's SBNR, I'm spiritual but not religious. even has its own Facebook page of fans who claim that this is really where they're at. Being spiritual but not religious, folks, has become a bit popular, normal, and even hip. And yet I want to suggest to you this morning, what we're going to talk about today is something that I think is even more dangerous. I think this spiritual but not religious thing is, frankly, scary. But I think there's something even worse. And it's this. It's religious but not righteous. In fact, I would argue that one of the reasons that these millennials have embraced this spiritual but not religious is because far too much religion has not been righteous. So I think they've looked at religion and said, (laughs) there's something missing there. You see, if you know your Bible and you know 
particularly the Gospels, there's a particular group of people who really, I guess, typified this religious but not righteous category. They were called the scribes and the Pharisees. Many of you are probably familiar with them. For those of you who aren't, let me just explain who they are and what they were all about. These were the folks who understood the law of Moses. They studied it. Um, They were known as the religious crowd. And in an effort to try and protect the law from people's disobedience and to protect the people from disobeying, they created application guides, um, new laws as to how you should fulfill true obedience to the law of Moses. Well, in so doing, they ended up over time not only falling in love with the law of Moses, but falling in love with their own laws. And before you knew it, their own laws became on equal parallel with the law of Moses. And they began teaching and um, espousing particular commandments that were really their own and actually ended up violating God's law. They ended up becoming very religious, but according to Jesus, they weren't very righteous. And it's these scribes and Pharisees, these religious rulers, who were the most threatened by Jesus and also opposed him most strongly. Over time, their man-made laws became so important to them that they ended up violating the very heart of God's commandments. And so they were religious, but they were not righteous. You tracking with this? You see the, the problem? So another word for being religious but not righteous is the word legalism. Now legalism gets thrown out all sorts of directions at people and at organizations and it's it's used for many different things. I've talked about legalism a number of times and let me just review with you what legalism is. For those of you who are not familiar with the term or you are familiar with it but you're not really sure exactly what it means. At the end of the day... The self, self is at the root of all legalism, but it expresses itself usually in two ways. The first is treating certain standards or regulations as those things that you keep by your own power in order to gain favor with God. So you do things, you obey, you you do these certain rules, these regulations, these things. And the reason that you're doing them is because you're trying to make God happy with you. And so you're busy and active trying to please God because you think that God is pleased by your actions and by what you do. The second form of legalism is creating certain codes of conduct that go beyond the teaching of the Bible, and then making conformity to these codes critical in order for you to be a real Christian. So legalists kind of develop two different camps. People who think they're Christians and people who are real Christians, and then they define the real Christians by those who keep these particular rules. And sometimes it's stated that, that real Christians do this, sometimes it's just in tone. Aura that, well, you could be like that, but you're like a junior varsity, you know, Christian. If you're like this, you're like on the varsity team. And boy, you do this, you're like starter. So there's this, this mentality and this attitude that develops. Now, the danger in the first definition is that we in our own power would try to be moral. I gotta make myself moral. I gotta make myself approved to God. The problem with the second definition, because it's an attempt in our own power, again, to make the church pure. So we're trying to protect 
the church, and so far we develop these, these rules. Both are failures of the same kind. The failure to trust God and to trust His power. Listen, there's a reason why the Bible says, walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Both have self-worship at the root. Both are just as sinful as rampant worldliness or licentiousness. So here's an interesting thought. Um, if you were to decide the time during the week when you could, pre- if you could preach a message to worldly licentious people, by licentious I mean they do sinful things, they're immoral, they just give all the pleasures of their flesh, whatever they want. If you could choose a time during the week that you could target the most licentious people, what time during the week would you choose? My guess would probably be maybe Friday night from like 11 to 2.30 or 2.45, maybe 3 o'clock, Saturday evening, okay? Here's another question. So if you were to target the folks who were most typically guilty of legalism, who would tend towards that particular sin issue, which time of the week would you choose to declare that message? Right now. Okay? From 8 o'clock in the morning till about 1 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday. Why? Because legalists attend church. Why? See, at the heart of the legalist and the heart of the licentious man or woman is really the same thing. The licentious man or woman uses risky and sinful behavior to worship himself. The legalist does the same thing, except he doesn't use immorality, he uses religion. Legalism is scary because of the level of self-deception. A licentious man commits his actions and he feels guilty. He just doesn't care to change. But a legalist doesn't think he needs to change because he doesn't feel guilty. He feels religious. And that's why it's so dangerous. The licentious, licentious man knows that he's unrighteous. The legalist thinks everybody else is. So as you can see, being religious but not being righteous is not only dangerous, quite frankly, it's offensive. It's no wonder 70-some percent of these millennials say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with organized religion. Our text today highlights a very important exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. And what I want to do today is draw out some concepts, some principles of some characteristics of legalism and then also some characteristics of righteousness And you could find other characteristics throughout the Bible, but in this text, here's some things that we see. So first, what are some characteristics of the legalist? The first one is this. Invariably, it seems to me that legalists are aggressive. They're they're known for aggressive action. Look at verse 1. It begins with a simple statement. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now, to some of you, that may seem like the beginning of the story. Uh, Once upon a time, something of that sort. It may seem rather unnecessary to even have that, but actually it's quite instructive. Because do you remember where we left Jesus two weeks ago? We left him after he had walked on water in the Sea of Galilee. And he had then gone to the city of Gennesaret on the shore of Galilee and healed a number of people. So the text tells us that scribes and Pharisees, a delegation of them, made the trip from Jerusalem to Gennesaret. Do you know how far Jerusalem is from Gennesaret? Well, I spent some time this week trying to figure out, depending on which route you take, it's anywhere from about 65 miles to 100 miles. If you go straight or around, depending on what route you took. 
So I tried to figure out, so how far is that? Well, yesterday I was driving from Michigan down to Indianapolis, and uh, Fort Wayne is about 100 miles from Carmel, um, from, from Fort Wayne to Carmel, about 100 miles. And then I started thinking, okay, so I'm traveling in a minivan. Um, how long would it take to walk that distance? So, praise the Lord for Google. I could take Google Maps, and uh, I could type in that directions and do, let's not drive, let's not bike, let's try walking. Any idea how long it would take? 35 hours. Non-stop. That's no rest stops, no food stops, no McDonald's stops. I mean, that's just, that's walking the whole way. 35 hours. So get this. The scribes and Pharisees, a delegation of them, travel 35 hours and walk all the way to find Jesus because they want to ask him a question. Now you'd think you'd travel 35 hours to ask somebody a question. The question's going to be a big deal question, right? So here's the question that they ask him. 35 hours. Hey, how come your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? Okay, seriously, 35 hours, and that's your question? That's, that's a long ways to think. What shall we ask him? What we, oh, here's a good one. Ask him this one. This will nail him. How come your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? That You know what that shows you? That shows you the aggressive action of those who are legalists. It's remarkable, isn't it, that um, they would travel that far? And what I have found in my experience is that aggressive action is often part of legalism, and here's why, because legalists are busy. It's part of their mantra of a do-it-myself mentality. It's part of their self-worship. And the reason is, is that at the core is a reliance on self. And so therefore, a legalist tends to be very aggressive with themselves and others. They not only believe that there's a certain way of doing things, but their spiritual pride causes them to feel like they are the self-appointed guardians of truth, and it's their mission in life to help others see it their way. They are busy, they're aggressive, they're opinionated, they're condescending, and they're always trying to make new converts of their way of thinking. They are convinced, and they are aggressive. Take your Bible, go a couple chapters over, Matthew 23. Here's what Jesus said about them in another setting. Look at Matthew 23, 15. Sometime, I think in the fall, we'll be up to this great passage in um, Matthew 23, maybe into the first of the year. Um, which, there's a number of woes that Jesus gives. Woe to you Pharisees, because you're like this. Woe to you Pharisees, because you're like that. Back and forth, these various kind of shocking statements. And he says something in verse 15 that I think captures the aggressive nature of their legalism. He says this, this is Matthew 23:15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. Notice how far they would go. You travel across sea and land, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Yeah, so you understand why they didn't get along real well, don't you? That's some pretty tough words there, isn't it? And what Jesus is saying here is, look, you are so aggressive, you're so convinced you're right. And it's not just enough for you to have your own stuff. You've got to go travel over sea and land and make your proselytes. So the first characteristic of a legalist is aggressive action. Here's the second one. And that is that what they say often sounds so spiritual. You see, part of the power of legalism is that if you were to unpack the DNA of legalism, you would find a truth strand in there. And what has happened over time is the truth has mutated. 
The truth is still there, so it sounds really spiritual. Somewhere along the line, somebody added something to a biblical truth and began focusing then on the addition rather than the biblical principle. See, the issue here that was going on was one of ceremonial washing, of cleanness, of ritual purity. The priests were commanded to do this kind of ceremonial washing, And if we understand the hint in Mark 7, it it seems as though what's happening here is that the Pharisees have now applied this rule to everyone. And and I can, just using a little bit of imagination, knowing people, knowing myself, hanging around church for, you know, 16, 17 years, I I can understand how this would happen. Um, So they got this law for the priests, and somebody says, you know what, if it's good for the priests, it's good for the people. You know what? The priest has stumbled across something. There's a special spiritual thing that when you do this ceremonial cleansing, it really, it really does something to you. It's spiritually meaningful and the priests do it. And then maybe the Pharisees started to do it and they're like, you know what? This is really helpful. This is, this has helped us to really feel and be more spiritual. Therefore, you know what? Everyone needs to do it. And before you know it, they took a law that was supposed to be just for priests and they apply it to everybody. And over time, this law now became the new standard, so to speak. As the priests and their laws now were applied to everyone. My guess is somehow they thought that this was going to be helpful. You see, in my experience in dealing with legalism in the lives of others and also in my own heart, I, I know that legalism usually comes from two sources. Um, the first source is fear. I've seen this happen. Um, someone's so afraid that someone's going to go off the deep end that they create all of these speed bumps along the way. And rather than seeing those speed bumps as warnings, they make the speed bumps the new laws. Rather than a caution, you better slow down, they start making stop signs. And, for instance, a a mom or a dad who, um, in their dating life, were immoral. And they're like, you know what, that's not happening to our kids And so they develop now a a new way of dating, and they call it courtship or betrothal, and they make that the new law, as if that's going to solve it. And out of their fear of what went wrong in their world, they now create a new law. And then they wonder why that doesn't work, to create real righteousness. Because while the young man or woman are sexually pure with one another, his heart is way off into all sorts of other deep, dark things. And you've ended up embracing one law and missing another issue. Or, here's another one, and this is far more common, not just fear, but joy. For instance, you you find something that really works for you spiritually. You have an aha moment. Something works. God meets with you, and suddenly you feel like you have found some really important truth that other people need to know. A a means of doing something, a, a, a methodology, something that you feel like this was so helpful, and now you begin talking about it and presenting it and, and laying it before people as if this is not just a way, if as if it's the way. The legalist mistakes a way from the way. And that happens. And before, you even sometimes even mean to go there, but in your enthusiasm, suddenly now it becomes, wow, this is the way. Let me give you some practical examples of this and a little fair warning. This is going to make some of you a little uncomfortable. Let's say that you received Christ after a great sermon 
while the pastor was pl- well, while somebody was playing just as I am, he gave an altar call and you came forward and you received Christ. Beautiful. Wonderful. And in your mind, that, that was it. You felt conviction. There was a call. You walked the aisle. You prayed to receive Christ. And that, that was it. And now, for the rest of your life, you think that real churches that are committed to the gospel give altar calls. And those who don't aren't really committed to the gospel. You might not say that, but you feel it. When an altar call comes, you're like, yes, we're being blessed by God. And when it's not, you're like, eh, junior varsity church. (laughs) Now, you won't say that, but that's how you feel. Another example. Maybe God blessed your heart through a particular song. Or maybe God really ministers to you through a particular type or style of music. And in your mind, this is the way we ought to worship God, because it's how it feels to you. This is how you experience God in a beautiful and glorious way. But the problem is, is that there's times that when another song comes up, it's sort of like you and God have your song. Like you and your wife have your song, and you and God kind of have your song that, you know, like, it's like, it's like your ballad with the Lord. And when that song comes, you're like dancing with Jesus. And the other song comes, you're like, okay, next dance card. I mean, you're just like, I'm not, I'm not dancing to that song. And the reality is in your heart, although you might not say it, or some of you might, you feel like, you know what? Real churches do this. Real churches sing contemporary choruses. No, real churches sing hymns. Real, real people who really love the Lord raise their hands. Real people don't clap in church. And the reality is, there's this thing that you might not say, but I think if we're honest, we feel. Here's another one. You've been using a particular method of studying the Bible. Maybe a particular style of preaching that really ministers to you. Or a particular curriculum that is just God used just to infuse great light upon your soul. And before you know it, in your enthusiasm about what God is doing in your life, you begin to grade people based upon whether or not they use the same book. Or the Bible that you use. The study Bible. Or there's no way that God could speak to you unless it was expositional preaching. Right? You see, the reality is we can take these things that are forms and we exalt them over the reality. Here's a last one, and then you can begin breathing again. Um, God shows up in a particular area of ministry. You're serving in the church, and man, God's just showing up. People's lives are being changed. Maybe it's little kids that are receiving Christ. They're making a big difference in the community in a, in a great way. You're showing the love of Jesus. And you just see God showing up all the time. And there's amazing stories of what's happening. And you look at other people, and they aren't in your area of ministry. And in your mind, you begin to think, if they really love Jesus, they'd be doing what I'm doing right here. Because God doesn't show up in that area. He shows up in mine. Oh, friends, we got to be careful the difference between things that are a way versus the way. You feel the tension? I could go on for a long time of a long list of really good things that became really bad. And if we're not careful, things can easily cross the line. But the problem is, is it sounds spiritual at first. Here's the third. And that is an unbalanced focus. Look at verses 3 and 6. Jesus answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. You're like, what? What's going on here? Let me explain this. 
there was a law called Corbin in uh, Jesus' day that if you made a pledge to the temple, you're going to give money from your reserves, that money, even though you still had it in your possession, was already committed. And therefore, if your mom and dad had financial need, let's say, for instance, in our context, they lost their health insurance or they were in trouble financially, they're getting kicked out of their condominium, and you've made a pledge to a building, and you've got that money in your hand and you haven't given it yet, the law in Israel was if it's committed to God, mom and dad don't have access to it. So so therefore, you could watch mom and dad get kicked out of the condo in Jerusalem when you had enough money to be able to help them out, but because it was committed to God, you didn't have to worry about it. But here's the deal. If you needed that money for something, you could use it. And that's what Jesus was driving at. Are you kidding me? You're going to commit something to the temple and you're going to neglect mom and dad? Are you, are you kidding me? That's, that's what he says. You violate the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition. So there's an unbalanced focus. What happens is legalism forgets what's really important. It loses its spiritual moorings. So while the legalist might seem to be more spiritual, more disciplined, more knowledgeable, he or she really is not because the focus isn't right. Jesus says in verse 6, For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Listen to Matthew 23, verses 23 and 24. This is another passage near the one that we read before. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe on mint, dill, and cumin. Little spices. You get little plants in your garden, and you tithe on those. So you're out there, you're measuring out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, ten. There you go. That's for the Lord. You're measuring all these things. Busy, 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 busy. What you doing out there? Measuring, making my tithe, counting my dill weeds, and you're counting them out, counting them out, counting them out, counting them out while you neglected the weightier measures like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Neighbor boys in the backyard slugging each other. Help me! Somebody stop! My brother's killing me! Ah, ah, ah. Sorry, counting my dillweed, can't help you. I mean, that's, that's how ridiculous it is. Therefore, Jesus says, you ought to have, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Here's one of my favorite little barbs in the New Testament. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. To get the image, you're like, ooh, gnat, gnat, ooh, ooh, camel. It's just so ridiculous. Straining on a gnat. Well, watch out, watch out, gnat. Swallow the camel. The idea is something really little and something large that you're trying to force down your python-like snake heart. You're trying to swallow this camel. And Jesus says it's the unbalanced focus that just makes you go, come on, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? And, and that's what legalism does. One day you just wake up and go, what, what were we thinking back then? Here's the last one, number four, and that is private dissonance. Finally, we come to the real problem when it comes to legalism, and the problem is lurking in the heart that only the legalist really knows. And here's the problem, their heart is far from God. So if you could hear the tune inside of their heart, the the spiritual person has got this great melody going on. Beautiful. But if you could hear the tune inside of the legalist heart, you'd hear this. No one hears that tune, but they do. So they give rule after rule, rule after rule, rule after rule. 
And what they should have heard is that's a warning sign. Bam, 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 as the heart goes further and further and further away from God. And in the rule-oriented, justify myself, I can do religion on my own mentality, their heart begins to drift. And they know it. They, it's on the inside. God is further and further and further. So what do they do? They work harder and harder and harder. They go from book to conference to this to that to speaker to church to this to that. And they're trying over and over and over. And what's happening is their heart is going further and further away from God. Isaiah. Jesus quotes Isaiah. Isaiah was the, the, the big time prophet. He quotes him in Matthew 15, 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What an indictment on religious people. Their, their heart is, they, they worship me with their lips, but their heart is very far from me. And what Jesus is doing here is accusing them of a fundamental fakery that is outrageous. In their worship of God, they actually have driven him out. They've used religion. Listen, they use religion to worship themselves. And this is always what, it ha- what happens with legalism. Religious activity that was supposed to be about God and His glory becomes about us. Rules written in the name of protecting people for, from sin when in fact they only create more sin. And the things that a person thought would draw him or her closer to God only serve to create further distance as the person works harder and harder and harder, but it's never enough. And the real reason is because the end game of legalism is not God, it's self. So these are the characteristics of legalism. Let me give you two cautions. First, as we went through this list, did you think of somebody that you knew or that you know? Or did you think of you? When we got to this list, we were like, oh yeah, I know someone like that. They, they sit over there. Um, I, I, I know someone like that. No, number three, oh yeah, they, they're, they're like, they come to the 1120 service. They sleep in on the Lord's Day. Good grief. Um, and and you, you think of people, if, if, if you started thinking of somebody else, bam, 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 that should be a warning to you. Here's the second thing. Caution. Be on guard because the subtle seeds of legalism creep into our life very easily. A mom or a dad who wants to have their kids be different than how they were when they grew up. Great goal. Just be sure you get the right solution. Somebody who's so full of joy of what God is doing in their heart and life. Awesome. Just be sure you point people to Jesus, not your system. Be careful when God gives you a form that's a blessing that you not make it the reality. And keep telling people over and over and over, this is a way, not the way. This is a way, not the way. Because real maturity is knowing the difference between the thes and the us. Between something that is the way and something that is a way. So that's what legalism is. Now, what is real righteousness all about? Gratefully, Jesus pulls his disciples aside and begins to talk to them about what real righteousness is. And um, the first one is that real righteousness is understanding that the real problem is internal and not external. The Pharisees are hung up by hand-washing. Travel a hundred miles in order to uh, 
ask him a question about hand washing, and then Jesus gets to the real source of the problem. Verse 10 and 11, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. What's Jesus doing here? He's showing them where the real problem is. See, the Pharisees were all hung up about outside stuff. The religious rulers were always concerned about the outside, and they thought the problem was what people do, and Jesus was like, "Mm -mm." no, the real problem is not the external. The external is the problem, don't get me wrong, but what he's saying is the internal is the real issue. And listen to me, if you get the source of the problem wrong, you'll develop bad solutions every single time. If the problem is just the behavior of your kids, you can get your kids to change their behavior. You can threaten them, you can bribe them, you can persuade them you can you can be a behavior modificationist in the context of your home and then their hearts will simply attach to something else if you don't know what the real problem is the real problem are not just actions no jesus says the problem is on the inside the real problem jesus says is what comes out of a person so real righteousness therefore begins by understanding that the real problem is not on the outside of me the real problem is on the inside of me and this is the difference of christianity from all other religions in the world this is the difference the difference is all other religions base their affirmation of god to man on what man or woman does what they do on the outside actions externals obedience Christianity is the only religion that says, no, the real problem is worse than that. It's not just the outside, it is the inside, and here's the problem with the inside. If the problem is inside, and the real problem is you, you can't change you. And that's why Christianity is all about Christ. Because he's the one person who can change the thing that you can't get to, which is who you are. So what you do is just the tip of the iceberg. Who you are, that's the real problem. Real righteousness, secondly, involves living for God's approval and not man's. The disciples come to Jesus and they say to him, Don't you know that you offended the Pharisees? I love this. Jesus is so free of the fear of man. It's because he knows the Father and knows where his... His validation comes from, and he says, they're the blind leading the blind. Jesus could care less what they think. Reminds me of Paul in Galatians 1.10 when he said, For am I seeking the approval of man or the approval of God? If I was trying to please man, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So this issue of um, the approval of God versus the approval of man is really important. In fact, so important that in August, when we talk about relationships again, we're going to dive into this, and we're going to look at this particular issue Some of you are approval junkies. Hmm. Or you have a friend that's one, so invite them and just just listen for them, right? So that'll be great. So we're approval junkies. We want people to love us. We want them to like us. And and honestly, if we could do it the way we wanted it, um, people would bow down to us because we crave their approval. And here's the problem. The problem is, if you're an approval junkie, legalism is very attractive to you because legalism has a hold on people by virtue of the fear of man. How you act, what you do, has a context, and there's pressure from other people. Just newsflash, peer pressure didn't go away when you turned 17. It, the objects just changed. Um, and fear of man affects even how, what you did today, how you dressed, what you wore. You realize that what you put on today is affected by the context of what other people think of you. So this is Father's Day. I was thinking about some things in my 
um, father's life. And I remember one time looking at an old photo album back from like 1970s and 80s, and I just couldn't believe the crazy things that my dad wore back in the 1970s. I mean, there was like nine-inch collars, you know, big hair, giant mutton chops. I mean, it was just, I used to look at that stuff and go, what was he thinking? And little sidebar, just hang out of those clothes because it all comes back eventually, right? So, and, and the other day, I, 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 thought, I thought to myself back then, that's never going to happen to me. You know. So the other day I come in the room and our boys are looking through an old creative memories book that my wife put together and they are just cracking up. They're pointing at a picture and they're like all snickering and laughing. And I'm coming in. What, what, I come in. What, what are you laughing at, boys? Uh, 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 and it's a picture of me they're pointing at. And uh, I was like, what? This is before we were um, had any kids and we we're out camping and walking in the woods and the boys look at a picture of me walking our dog and they're like, Dad, look at your shorts. <laughs> There's like nothing to them. And I looked, and sure enough, man, they're like four inches beyond a Speedo. I mean, this is not cool. And, I, and, and so I'm looking at that, and I was like, why don't you guys be quiet, you know? I was like, that was in style then. That was, that was, that was cool then. They're like, yeah, I bet. I mean, they, went, they weren't buying that. And the reality is what you wear is affected by the community context. And that's one thing when it comes to clothing, when it comes to how you conduct yourself in church and the rules and all things like that. And that can grab a hold of your heart and it's really hard for that to ever let go. So the approval of man is a big deal. One of the primary ways that the enemy holds us in legalism is through the fear of what other people think of you. Unwritten rules, judgmental looks, the pressure to fit in, the focus on externals, and you can make a self-made prison. And it happened in Jesus' day. The Pharisees, or some of the rulers, rather, um, refused to believe in Jesus because John 12 says, verse 43, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What a powerful statement that is. Here's the final one. And that is that we need to focus on heart, not just on actions. Focus on the heart. Jesus ends um, his explanation to Peter with a statement about how heart-focused we need to be. Real righteousness is really about, friends, what's going on in the heart. Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. So real righteousness drives deeper than actions alone, and it aims for the ultimate source, which is the heart. So verse 19 tells us that evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander, where do they come from? They all come from out of the heart. In other words, real righteousness focuses on where real righteousness comes from. So it still includes, don't get me wrong, it still includes a focus on adultery and sexual morality and theft and slander and all those things you bet. Are all those things bad? Yes. But they're not the real problem. Jesus says the real problem is the heart. Legalism ends with externals, but real righteousness says we've got to get to the heart. The problem is on the inside, and the source is the heart. So focus then determines everything. When you focus on externals, you're going to make a big deal out of things that you shouldn't. And then you'll neglect bigger issues. So why does the legalist miss the heart? Here's why. Because the legalist focuses on what he can do. Legalism is self-absorbed. And the legalist misses the heart because he or she cannot change it. And here is where the gospel is inserted with a glorious assault on legalism. 
In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 11, God promised that one day, there would come a day when he would take out the heart of stone, this hard-hearted people. He would take out their heart of stone and he would give them a heart of flesh. In other words, he would take out their hard-hearted rebellion and he would change the one thing that they could never change. He would change the inside of them. He'd give them a new heart. He'd fill them with the Spirit so that they could then keep his rules and obey him, not just on the outside, but from the inside. And when they did so, they would know it was not them, but it was God who was doing that work. And they would know in the depths of their hearts that the old person has gone and the new has come. That's why Paul says, in Christ you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new man or the new woman has come. That's why Jesus describes to Nicodemus that conversion is being born again. It's the same body, it's the same mind, it's the same physical heart, but make no mistake about it, when Christ conquers your heart, you are a new creature. Now the old person is gone, and a new person has been birthed. There's a new motive, a new heart, a new joy, a new life. Real righteousness focuses on the heart. So hear me. You will never know what real righteousness is unless you know Christ. You cannot fix your heart. You can't self-atone. And as well, the more you know about real righteousness and the more you know about your own heart, the worse the news becomes. Because you get to know how really bad your heart is. If that was just the only story, that would be depressing But the beautiful thing is, is the more you grow in righteousness, the more you know how bad your heart is, but more glorious Christ becomes. So if in your pursuit of righteousness, you begin to feel like, you know what, I'm doing pretty good. I'm better than most people. I'm I'm walking in righteousness. That's a warning sign. Real righteousness says, oh man, I am just, my heart is so bad. It's so wicked. It's just, oh, if I didn't have Christ... Oh, when I was 15, I thought it was bad. No, I, I'm worse now at age 40. And oh my goodness, I'm 90. Now I'm really in trouble because I know how bad my life in total is. But without a view of Christ, it would be hopeless. But with a view of Jesus, oh my word, now it becomes this most glorious thing that your answer is not how you have somehow made it in life, but now you really begin to know who you are and without Him, you've got nothing. So, I heard a story this week that I think just really captures this well. In my heart, I'm bad. I'm a bad dad. But with Christ, I'm a new person. So some friends of ours, they have a number of children, and they told us a story that they were all loaded up in the car, and uh, dad ran inside to go get something. He'd forgot something. And unbeknownst to mom and dad who were in the car, one of their, um, their daughters followed them into the house. She went right and he went left or something because when he went into the house, he had no idea that she was in there. And um, so as he walked outside to lock the door, he reached in, locked the door, and she was at the stairs and didn't tell him, and he closed the door. So she saw his hand, locked the door, and closed, and she's standing there going, what's this? And next thing you know, climbs in the car. No one knows she's not missing. Mom and Dad don't. And they begin to pull out and leave. They put a, a sermon in the uh, in the tape deck and they begin listening and one of their children in the back seat is trying to tell them something. 
And they keep saying, be quiet, be quiet, we're talking, we're, list- we're listening to the sermon, be quiet. Don't, 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 talk, don't talk right now, don't talk right now. And so they, they travel along and, and, and they keep, the child keeps trying to say something. And they're like, be quiet. And, and 30 minutes down the road, uh, finally they said, now what was it that you wanted to tell us? And the little child in the back seat said, empty seat. <laughs> empty seat. And they look back and sure enough where their daughter was sitting, empty seat, 30 minutes away. Put it all together. They call their neighbor. Hey, 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 you gotta run over to our house really quick because our daughter Julie is, uh, is, is in the house and we're 30 minutes away and, 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 and we left her. Can you go over there? Please don't call the police. And, uh, and so they, so they, 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 they arrive back home and, uh, dad walks in and there's his daughter Julie crying. He grabs a hold of her, hugs her, holds her. And, I'm so sorry, honey. I had no idea. And she thought in his mind that he had intentionally locked the door and left her on purpose. And I didn't mean that. I would never do that to you. You know your daddy loves you. And he looks over and he sees something next to him. And th- there's a letter on the table. And you see, Julie had like 30 minutes. And so she wanted to tell her dad a few things while they were gone. <laughs> and so he looked. And in this sparkly little crayon thing, it says... You are a bad, 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 bad dad. And it was signed, Grumpy Julie. He said, what's that? So, oh, never mind. It's nothing. It's nothing. And the reality is the content on that letter is spot on. Every dad in this room is a bad, 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 bad dad. But if you know Christ, you are a new dad, a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And what that means is that real righteousness, therefore, will never be a reality unless Christ is at the center. Religion will always be unrighteous unless Christ is at the heart. Oh, beloved, flee from legalism, but be sure you flee to Christ. Father in heaven, we pray that you would remind us of the power of this gospel that we have talked about this morning. Remind us of the power of a bad dad becoming a renewed dad by the power of the Holy Spirit through the relationship with Christ. Oh Lord, guard us from the subtle seeds of legalism. It happens so easily. Forgive us, God, for the moments in this sermon when we've thought of others instead of ourselves. Forgive us for the ways in which we have used things that used to be about your glory and they have slowly but surely become about us. Lord, forgive us for making things that are a way the way. And just, College Park, in the quietness of this moment, as you just reflect on what we've talked about this morning, would you just... Just talk to the Lord about what's going on inside of your heart, what, what, what the Lord knows that's going on inside your heart. But maybe you're here today and, you know, the reality is you're a bad, 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 bad man or a bad woman. And today you're realizing, I need, I need help. I can't, I've made a mess of my life and I cannot fix the inside of me. Oh, we would love to be able to show you Christ. Afterwards, we'll have some folks up here who'd love to pray with you. Today could be a day where you are literally born again. Don't ignore the warning sign. Maybe you're here, you know Christ as your Savior. But the reality is you live practically like it's all about you. Your power, your authority, your effort. 
And maybe God today just wants to remind you, look, this is not about you. This is about my son. And maybe some of us here today need to grow greater in grace by understanding that the more we know, the greater our the greater the picture of our heart becomes about how bad it is. But we run to Christ. So Father, I pray that you would now seal in our hearts what it is that you have said to us. Thank you that you are the only one who can keep us. You're the only one who can change us. Thank you, Jesus, that you paid it all. All to you we owe. And now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 I love you. God bless you.